And uh, welcome everyone to Biotech Hangout. I'm joined by my co-host Josh Shimmer and guest co-host Ethan Perlstein. We have a lot to talk about today with earnings, data, deals, etc. And I wanted to provide a brief update too. On Biotech Hangout, we're now averaging over 2,000 listeners per episode, including replays. We've been getting lots of positive feedback on the format, the content, the community of co-hosts, the timing. Uh, and also got some really sort of intriguing specific feedback this week that we need to talk about more of the challenging topics. So I was interested by that feedback because it felt to me like we've been mostly covering the challenging topics, including the tough financing environment and how companies are navigating. But curious to hear what you both think. And, and I'm also uh, I would also like to invite anybody in the audience to either ask us or comment on you know any tough question that you have or, or challenging topic via the chat function in this at the bottom of the screen here and also feel free to just raise your hand and come up if there's something that you think we should really uh, be addressing in any of these topics so uh, I'm going to ask hand it over to the two of you to see if you have any comments on that and then uh, we can get started yeah I'll, I'll, I'll jump in first um... First, let me just read my disclosures as usual. Epicore ISI disclosures for the companies I uh, that I cover can be found on the Biotech Hangout homepage, and none of my comments should be interpreted as stock recommendations. I'm sure nobody needs my help losing money in biotech. Um, you know, it's it's such a, it's interesting, right? Because I I think we have been trying to do a you know reasonably balanced. Um, level of commentary, maybe maybe not enough schadenfreude for, for everyone in, uh, in the audience and, and picking on some uh, some of the company updates. Like, uh, I, know, I know Brad, Brad actually did that very, very well. And, you know, we're, we're always trying to get that, that balance right. I guess for me, you know, part of it's also just kind of sensing, sensing where we are in the markets, right? When things are a little frothy, that's maybe where you get a little bit more uh, pessimistic when when things have fallen and there's a little bit more value opportunity out there. You can um, be a little bit more uh, Pollyannish with your with your outlooks. Again, with caveat, none, none of these are, are stock recommendations. But yeah, I was I was trying to get that that right balance, and uh, you know maybe we can also bring Brad back from uh, from time to, to time for some of his uh, uh, commentary as well. That I know we we all really enjoyed hearing. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, what I've always been impressed about uh, with you, Josh, is when everybody else was really bullish, that's when you were among the most skeptical. So, uh, yeah, I think balance is important. And also just recognizing that this is a tough industry and, you know, sometimes good companies get bad news and just trying to be balanced when we cover bad news as well. Uh, which speaking of which um, you so you had done some analysis, which I think is on the less rosy side, looking at consolidation and including companies that we've lost so far this year. I think you had said that we lost 40 companies over the last couple of months. Uh, curious to hear your thoughts. on Yeah. That, Josh. Yeah. So it's kind of like my own made up consolidation math. Um, and the reality is like consolidation is important if we want the sector to thrive again. Um, consolidation can can come in in good ways and, and not so good ways, and and it hurts, but it helps, right? It's kind of like the turnips of biotech. So, the math that, that I use is you know count count a point for uh, for every new IPO, count a point for every reverse merger, 
Uh, and counterpoint for every company that manages to escape from the valuation black hole gravitational pull of falling below 100 million market cap. So once companies are below that level, really, really hard to, to ever recover. So, so that's kind of like the, the growth dynamic in the sector. And then you subtract a point for every M&A, for every failed company, which, which also often coincides with being trapped by that black hole of, of being under 100 million market cap. And so you know, even if companies didn't fail and they fall below that level, you kind of count them as a, as a negative. And just over the past few months, again, as, as the market kind of continues to, to, to work through those, those years of essentially too many IPOs and, and we're, we're kind of in cleanup mode. I count that we're kind of in a, in a negative 40 company balance. And you know, over the course of the last you know, 12 months, we're, we're, we're minus high. I haven't done that math, but you're just kind of looking at the screens of, of how many companies have had fallen below 100 million. We're, we're negative hundreds. And again, like after, after we spent five years IPOing enough companies to last us 10 to 15 years. If we do want to get back to a growth outlook, if we do want that IPO window to open up again, you know, we, we really do need to continue to, to quote, clean up the sector. Unfortunately, it's not always in, you know, in good ways with, with um, positive uh, acquisitions. Sometimes it's in more, more painful ways. And unfortunate for those companies that get, get sucked into that valuation black hole. But as I said, like if we want to be able to expand the industry again, to open up the IPO window again, you know, this, this is all getting us there. Yeah. And one of the things that I think we've been seeing a lot more of is creativity. So, you know, creativity in companies looking to do different types of deals, smaller, you know, pharma, smaller company, biotech, biotech deals, but also a lot more royalty uh, groups have been really active. And it's almost like every week there's one or two of these royalty deals. So this, this week we had Agios announcing that it sold its rights to 5% royalties on sales of Servier's Tipsovo to Sagard Healthcare Partners for $132 million. And, and I think what's interesting about this is that we're beginning to see companies really bring in substantial and meaningful amounts of money from these royalty types of deals. They mentioned that it was a competitive process, and perhaps that's why analysts noted that this was higher than what they estimated the NPV of those royalties to be. So I thought that was really uh, promising. And then on the deal front this week, we saw Sumitomo Pharma buying out Myovant for $2.9 billion. Sumitomo previously had a 52% stake um, secured, and now they bought the remainder of Myovant shares for $1.7 billion or $27 per share, which is a 10% premium on last Friday's closing price. This was 19% higher per share than an earlier, earlier bid that they made at the start of October. And, you know, you'll recall that in 2019, Sumitomo spent about $3 billion to buy only the stakes owned by Royvant in five different companies. And I, I remember at that time, some of the minority investors in those companies were not too happy I wonder if they feel better now after this deal and the Eurovant uh, Sciences deal, which was a 96% premium at the time of that deal. I don't know if you've heard anything on that, either one of you. And uh, not not specifically uh, for you know how they're how they're feeling now, but yeah, definitely definitely a good outcome and, and good for the sector. And you know, for me, it's it's a reminder that 
you know, mo most companies in biotech aren't, aren't really built to last, right? Having, having one product approved and commercialized is you know, not, not a particularly sustainable business model. And that's where the, you know, that's where the challenges emerge. Like, like if, if you're a one product company, um, what do you do, right? Do you invest all of the, you know, potential earnings from your asset into speculative innovation and, and hope to get lucky again and hope to succeed again? What's the probability that's, that's going to happen if you acknowledge that, you know, the reality is that the vast majority of companies in, in biotech don't even succeed in getting one product approved, let alone more than one approved. Do you, you know, do you look to consolidate? Do you, you, do you look to be consolidate, be consolidated? But you know, for for me, part of the whole inexplicable element of biotech is how what's perceived to be a business model. You know, do science, get a product approved, hope that pharma acquires you. If not, try to figure out how to you know how how to thrive beyond that that initial product. That's that's not that's not really a. a a sound business model. I mean, it, it's a business model. I'm not sure it's a sound business model. And yet for years and decades in the past and probably for years into the future, that is the, the standard template for, for the industry. And what I always find interesting is trying to find companies that, that really are built to, to last. I'm not sure any company is like truly built to last in perpetuity. But, but built to, to have multiple product successes, built to be able to withstand, you know, one patent cliff eventually in, in the horizon and still thrive in a way that doesn't incur, you know, excess risk of, of the round trip, right? The round trip being, wow, we had one product approved and it sold, you know, peak sales in the hundreds of millions and then this patent ran out and we don't really have much left we never really returned capital to shareholders. We never generated much of a profit. Spent a lot of money on R and D that never worked out. Um, you know, that's that's a it's a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. An interesting topic, and you know, curious, Daphne and Ethan, how how you think about that, and, and Daphne, how you how you apply that thinking to a company like like PureTech? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that what we're going to to need to see more of is companies like Biohaven who, you know, successfully launch their drugs because I agree with you 100% the business model uh, of waiting for a limited number of companies to acquire you um, doesn't seem, you know, doesn't seem sustainable. And, you know, I think once we see more successes around launches, uh, that would be you know, very helpful for the sector. Um, you know, and I, I think that this this uh, sort of the synergy between smaller biotechs and large pharma companies is one that has been under a lot of scrutiny. Um, you know, you hear people, regulators who don't really understand the industry talking about how these companies, you know, subsume the smaller companies, you know, shelve their innovation and all kinds of things like that. Um, but, you know, actually, it, it, it brings to mind on a smaller scale and at the earlier phases, this idea that the commercial or the sort of business uh, focus uh, to take, in, you know, drugs and develop them, it, you're, you're constantly balancing that with the, um, you know, with patients and what you're going to be doing for patients. And actually a really relevant uh, piece of news this week was around Taisha. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but, you know, that they've been in the news for a while. Um, 
today, this week they did a deal, but uh, one of the things that they've gotten some criticism around is the idea that they were set up to help all these patients develop you know, ultra rare diseases. And then they sort of couldn't fulfill that promise. Ethan, do you want to talk about Taija and, and maybe answer also Josh's question about the industry, our business model and how sustainable, you know, how are we making it more sustainable? Yeah. So Taisha Gene Therapies is the company and uh, set, uh, set up in Dallas um, and kind of spun out of UT Southwestern, Dr. Stephen Gray, sort of a gene therapy, AV, uh, AV9 particular kind of pioneer. And, you know, kind of the, the short of the story is that many families, family foundations, often a single family driving a foundation, um, you know, often desperate families facing a neurodegenerative condition um, that often is a, is a death sentence for their loved ones. So um, very motivated, uh, very, or a very uh, seeking urgent um, sort of a treatment. And uh, so many of them flock to, to particular labs that are known to uh, be pioneers for, for a specific modality like gene therapy. So uh, enough of these programs got kicked off by families and foundations often under, you know, research agreements uh, that were not very foundation or fam you know, family friendly per se, that were sort of stacked in the favor of the institution, um, or the medical center or whatever the case would be. Uh, and, you know, parents often don't have time to negotiate these kinds of things uh, or don't even know to negotiate these kinds of things. So in any case, you know, a lot of these programs that were really initially seed capitalized, not by the NIH, but by these families, um, you know, essentially can get bundled up into a company and and that company can go, you know, have a platform and, and raise and go public off of that platform. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, those dozens of declared programs uh, ended up uh, not not really being commercially viable because these are all ultra orphan in indications. And I guess um, the reality of that at some point, um, you know, really became uh, unavoidable. So the companies like Tasha have been um, sort of letting go. Uh, you could use stronger language, maybe uh, abandoning these already orphan sort of programs. Uh, and oftentimes the families and foundations that put up the initial capital are really almost frighteningly powerless to do anything about it or to have any clawback provisions. So, yeah, technically now it looks like Tasha's now been able to uh, work with uh, Estellas here. Um, and Estellas will be taking a 15% stake in the company for $50 million and get exclusive option to, to license um, to two different programs, uh, to one, one for Rett syndrome and one for giant axonal neuropathy, um, so Rett syndrome being kind of a more common rare. So, yeah, I hope for the sake of those, those communities that, th that these uh, shots on goal uh, might pay off. But I think to me that the bigger takeaway is it definitely is not sustainable um, to sort of have these families and desperate families and, and foundations, you know, play the role of mini NIH. Um, but basically get no rights and basically be expected to just wait, pray, hope that everything works out. And then when things don't work out um, and they're sort of told, sorry, um, that's really not good enough in my book. So, yeah, I think we definitely need to do a lot more work here um, and hopefully there's a lot of learnings here for, for the industry and for, for families and for medical centers and for everyone involved to uh, really understand, you know, how to make sure that we're serving these communities uh, at the end of the day with medicines. That's really should be the, the bottom line. Yeah, that, that endpoints news story was really hard to read. You know, like 
these you can feel the desperation of these families and, and how they may feel not not only abandoned but but actually like obstructed because they had they put together a um, a, a venture syndicate to kind of pick up the ball that um, Taisha had had not been able to carry, and they, you know, the obstacle that they ran into was Taisha and their their legal rights to the to the program. Um, you know, but it but it sounds like there is uh, an interest on on Taisha's behalf to kind of figure out a way for these families to to move forward, and you know, hopefully that um, that article just kind of makes makes that happen a little bit faster. Because you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, so many so many companies, so much of our industry is is built on the back of, of patients, of you know, patients who, who are enduring you know pretty significant suffering and unmet medical need. And you know, when you see something, read something like that, it feels a little an- antithetical to what the industry's. Um, supposed to be about so you know to ho- hopefully some progress can be made quickly on that front yeah and i think ethan is actually helping some of those families which which is great he's done a lot okay. to help um parents of children with ultra rare diseases maybe we can talk about that uh, another time in a little bit more depth so uh, pivoting back to financings uh, data and sort of the way the industry functions you know what one thing we've been talking about is that despite the IPO markets still being pretty dismal, the follow-on markets seem to be functioning, and we do see companies benefiting from good data. Vaxite reported positive data on its experimental pneumonia vaccine, which looked good compared to competitors like Prevnar, and could potentially make this a best-in-class vaccine against bacterial pneumonia. The stock was up 65% on the back of the news, and the company raised $600 million, I think at $32, and is now back above $40 per share. So um, this is one of the biggest uh, follow-ons in, in NASDAQ um, in 2010-22. I think the, uh, the other big one was Karuna's $862 million financing in August. Um, but speaking of vaccines, Josh, you had some comments on Pfizer versus GSK vaccine efficacy. Yeah, so that's that's one we're we're keeping an eye on because it's relevant to um, you know some of the companies we we do cover that are developing their own RSV vaccine and you know the the uh, the context here is that when they both press released their results it looked like GSK had the advantage in vaccine efficacy posting um, you know, just a stronger result than than Pfizer. And I was it was surprising because the immunogenicity data for those two vaccines looked pretty similar. So it's like, oh, that's weird. Why would why would one be so much better than the other? And you know, it's, when they presented their results at at ID Week, kind of had a chance to see how they each defined uh, an RSV vax uh, infection, and just kind of subtle nuances between the the way that they define them as as the primary endpoint seem to explain most of the difference so not so much the vaccines themselves but but the endpoint definitions uh, that's something that we all uh, or many of us that kind of kind of went through with with covid and needing to understand vaccine efficacy as a function of well how do you how do you determine an infection because it's not quite as easy as as one might think um so that that gap between the two vaccines seemed to to essentially disappear once once you could try to make an, an apples to apples comparison. But yeah, again, that, and this is something that that we often bump into in other settings as well. You know, for example, 
wet AMD uh, anti-VEGF therapies injected to the into the eye to to treat some some hypervascular diseases of of the retina that can lead to to vision loss. There are so many different nuances and tricks to the trial designs that it's really hard to get a clear comparison between one drug and another drug across trials when everyone's kind of introducing subtle differences in in outcome measures and, and, and similar trial design criteria. So that's kind of one of the fun things that I find in the industry is is when when things don't necessarily align on a biologic basis, right? Like as an example, why would GSK's vaccine for RSV be so much better than Pfizer's when they, they kind of look so similar on their immunogenicity profile? And then you kind of have to dig in and, and tease out the, the reason why they, they wound up looking different in a clinical trial setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and um, you, I think you're going to cover some of the GSK earnings um, updates in a moment. Um, but also there were there were a lot of earnings this week. So I think we're not going to go into all the detail, but we're going to try to power through the section uh, with, a, with a focus on the, the more notable news. You know, for example, Gilead reported earnings today and is up over 11%, uh, I think mostly due to uh, good news from their both oncology and HIV franchises. I understand that Umer covers them. So um, Maybe we'll skip that one today, and you could do quick hits on some of the others like AstraZeneca, Abvis, Sanofi, Novartis, and GSK. Yeah, uh, a lot going, a lot going on. It was a pretty choppy uh, week for for earnings. You're seeing, you know, FX was was wrecking havoc for for a number of companies. Um, you know, so some some highlights, some some less highlights. Uh, just in no no particular order. You know, um, Sanofi printed a very strong uh, uh, depiction quarter in the U.S. Um, that lifted both Sanofi and Regeneron today. You know, Vertex had another great quarter for Trikafta. That's a, for some reason, that stock's been all over the place. I think we're, we're trying to understand why that is. Um, you know, Argenix, a really strong print for uh, for Vibgard. It's FCRN antibody for myasthenia gravis. The, the stock didn't move on the print, but then it's it's up nicely today. Again, just kind of part of all this choppiness, same with Elnylam and their their uh, their uh, TTR uh, new product launch. Um, you know, Biomarin, Bi- uh, also a stock that's kind of been up and down on, on their call. They announced that their gene therapy for hemophilia is likely to go to an FDA advisory committee uh, next year. And, you know, that, that seemed to spook some some investors got a lot of uh, focus on, on their earnings call. Honestly, it's kind of hard to not see that product going in front of an advisory committee, given the novelty of this approach for you know gene therapy for such a large, um, or rel- relatively large orphan uh, disease population. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the FDA even comes up with to to debate and talk that uh, on that panel. Um, you know, other other kind of tidbits and, and highlights, you know, AbbVie, really strong uh, performance in their immunology franchise, but kind of missed on most of the other revenue line items. And they're, they're actually interesting, like we're starting to feel the pressure of consumer discretionary spending as we're heading potentially into a recession, really starting to impact their, uh, their aesthetics business. And so that stock's come under pressure today. Um, another interesting highlight is, you know, just as a group, the CAR-T therapies in total 
Um, now annualizing at, at $3 billion per year, probably on its way to, to $10 billion per year. And so it'll be interesting to see how that space evolves because the, you know, as I think most, most probably know, the, the, the CAR T therapies, the, the autologous CAR Ts are the first movers, but then there's a, you know, a whole group of companies that are trying to pull these into an off the shelf cell therapy uh, product offering. On, on the GSK front, um, they, they had some more R&D updates. I think they, I believe they reported in this uh, next week, I'm not mistaken, but um, they dropped some of their, like at a time that CAR-T is really starting to thrive, they dropped some of their cell therapy partnerships with uh, Adaptogen and Lyle. They also uh, discontinued their GMCSF antibody program for rheumatoid arthritis after you know, they, what they reported in the phase three trials seems with, with two of which were positive in the, in the um, demurred non-responders, but, but not the, some of the more refractory population, very much consistent with what they had shown in phase two, right? So they kind of seemingly replicated that in phase three and then dropped the program. Um, that seems like a company that's, that's, that's really been struggling with its, uh, with its own innovation engine, which, you know, we, we see large pharma companies go through these challenges and some of them are able to, to regroup. Um, AstraZeneca is a, is a you know, and Novartis are, are two companies that at one point were struggling with their own innovation engines, but really brought them back to life. So, you know, it can be done with, with, uh, with time and effort, but those are, those are, I think, some of the more interesting uh, updates for the week out of, uh, out of earnings. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'll just note that we have, um, we're, feel free to raise your hand if you have a question or a comment. We have some good folks in the audience um, that are really experts and comment a lot on news, earnings, data, and, and other things. I see at, at least 10 people that I would love to bring up. And, and so just raise your hand if you want to comment on anything we're saying. Yeah. Uh, we're going to, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, we'd love to hear people's thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're going to move now to FDA news. Um, maybe we'll start with Ethan uh, covering Ipsen and uh, their rare disease drug. Uh, that just had a delay. Sure. So no, uh, bear with me all. I'm, I'm new at this sort of part of the kind of reporting on uh, public companies and, and kind of this kind of action here. So going off of a, a story here from uh, Max Baer at Fierce Biotech, but um, this uh, was uh, came out early this week on the 2015th. So just summarize that drug maker uh, Ipsen gets a new FDA da- uh, data request uh, on its uh, rare disease drug med and has a delay actually in advisory meetings. So Ipsen is developing a, a medicine for a rare genetic disease called fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva (FOP). So this is where the bones progressively stiffen uh, over time, especially after breaks. Um, so really, really catastrophic. Uh, but extremely ultra-rare disease. Um, there's a small molecule. Um, this is actually, let me get this uh, compound name here, um, palaveratine, um, which is a retinoic acid uh, receptor uh, 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 modulator. Um, this is now progressed all the way to phase three. Um, and uh, fortunately, there's been a dosing hold uh, as well um, in, in adults. Uh, so it's been sort of a choppy ride here um, and hopefully this, this community has really been uh, desperate for, for a medicine. Again, it's, it's actually, I think, one in a million among sort of super ultra rare. Um, 
this phase three is actually an uh, open uh, label. Um, and so they've submitted here uh, for NDA last year, but this is an, a now uh, another delay that they're uh, sort of uh, requesting. So uh, I, I'm not sure what the outcome will be, um, but uh, definitely, as I said, always rooting for these rare disease uh, communities. Yeah. Um, did you want to cover recursion or do you want to skip that and we'll go to J&J? Yeah, I only looked Josh. at that uh, briefly, uh, but uh, yeah, it looks like uh, there's a, a reprioritization there of their pipeline, but I, I haven't, uh, I didn't dive uh, super deep. Okay, so let's skip that and we'll go to J&J's bispecific antibody, which is granted accelerated approval by the FDA. Josh, can you cover that? Yeah, well, I think what's what's interesting here is is how J and J is emerging as a myeloma leader. That that used to be Celgene's domain, um, but J and J um, acquired or licensed rights to to Darzelex from from GenMad, which probably one of the best partnership deals of, of all time. Just given the success Darzelex has had recently um, with Legend Bio and got a, approval of uh, Carvicti, which is off to a to a good launch. Uh, as well as a, as a CAR T therapy for for myeloma, and they're working through some of their capacity cons manufacturing capacity constraints. And now they're adding the bi BCMA bispecific to the mix. Um, so it really is quite the impressive and, and complementary portfolio, which I think is also a, a reminder of the importance of business models, right? And the, the importance of being able to emerge as a as a therapeutic category leader. And, and build those portfolios that give you, you know, a fair amount of power with, with the, the physician community, with the payer community. I think what's interesting here is that, you know, that no one should be surprised if you see BCMA CAR-T and BCMA biospecifics work, work together or sequentially or complementarily. Um, while they, in theory, target the same antigen, they, they probably work very differently right? with, with the, with the CAR-T you have the benefit of um, fluverbine and cyclophosphamide, which, which probably does have some fair, fairly meaningful anti-tumor effect. Um, it probably even works no matter what antigen you target, even if it's not expressed on myeloma cells. That was an interesting lesson years back when um, the CD19 targeting CAR-T looked really excellent in myeloma kind of inexplicably because myeloma cells don't express CD19. And so that work actually stopped fairly abruptly. I don't know if, if it's because they knew that they were going to have a hard time explaining why a CD19 CAR-T would work so well in, in myeloma cells that, that have no CD19 CAR-T. I, I think from what I recall, the data on the BCMA CAR-T works great, whether or not BCMA is expressed on the myeloma cells as well. Um, it's, it, it's kind of like a huge can of worms around how these, these cell therapies work. And at the end of the day, they deliver tremendous value to patients, so it, it might not exactly matter um, how, they're, how they're working, but I think the point here is that a really interesting, complementary, powerful portfolio that changes bringing into this space. It's really interesting to contrast the two companies that you were talking about, GSK earlier, sort of giving getting out of cell therapy right when it looks like it's getting interesting and then Jane j being really thoughtful and about how they built this myeloma franchise it's just, i think it's really interesting to see how these different companies are going about things on the bd side so um go, moving on to an area that i've been tracking for a while that i actually think is uh, about to turn a corner 
the microbiome field. So it's been on a long and winding road. And if you think about Gartner's cycle, microbiome definitely passed the peak of inflated expectations years ago. It has been wading through the trove disillusionment and with recent news finally seems to be on the slope of enlightenment. So this week's series announcement that the FDA has accepted their BLA for the lead program in treatment of recurrent C. diff infection with priority review, um, and the FDA does not plan to hold an ADCOM. There's uh, a PDUFA date of April 26, 2023. All of that is very positive. And then we also had last month Rebiotics, which was acquired by Faring, announcing a positive vote, 13 to 4 on efficacy, 12 to 4 with one abstention on safety during an FDA ADCOM for their investigational microbiota-based live biotherapeutic, which is also being studied for recurrent C. diff infection. If approved, uh, these could be the first microbiome therapeutics uh, and potentially pave the way for other defined products in this space. And you know, one of the things I, I wanted to mention is this has been an area of great interest and in very intriguing academic papers over the years. There's been criticism that some of the early work was around correlation, but you know, quietly, you know, while it's been sort of in the doghouse, uh, there's been a number of companies and academic labs actually publishing, doing experiments, publishing data, both preclinical and clinical, uh, that begin to touch on causation, not, not correlation. Actually, beginning to look like an an area uh, that is going to make a difference. So. One thing that's important to notice, it's been on the radar company of Big Pharma for a while. In fact, a couple of years ago, we hosted the heads of R&D of five major pharma companies to discuss what would it take to get the microbiome over the finish line from their perspective. And, you know, we you know, talked about clinical data. We talked about which areas of microbiome seem more really tangible versus those that seem really to be overreaching um, in terms of the data. And I remember talking to Michael Dolston from Pfizer, who told me that he'd been tracking this field. That was this was a few years ago. He'd been tracking microbiome for over 20 years. And, um, you know, I think now with companies, you know, getting close to FDA approvals and, you know, with, with full disclosure, uh, we're involved with Vedanta and they've recently announced really good uh, data. So I think that I personally believe that we might be on the cusp of a shift in, in sentiment around the microbiome. Curious to hear what you think, uh, Josh and Ethan, if you want to comment on the microbiome. And also this whole concept of this Gartner cycle as it applies to biotech. Like you, you hear about an area, everybody gets really excited, then it doesn't, you know, it takes a while for it to translate years. It's sort of in the doghouse and then it kind of turns around. We saw that with a number of new modalities. It's 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 such an interesting space. I mean, C. diff is uh, in, certainly in hindsight a, an obvious starting point. I, so, in considering the success that those products have had, but but I guess the the premise there is is also fairly intuitive, right? You've got this pathogenic form of of C. difficile, and you're you're basically trying to outcompete it with healthier uh, gut bacteria and and replacing those and and yeah, those products have shown have shown very good profiles. To, in some ways, it, it kind of reminds me of introducing like genetically modified mosquitoes, so that 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 can't transmit certain infections. Right, like just kind of that it's that outcompeting concept where you know that there's a, a pathogenic player here. And I guess I guess for me, what I what I struggle with is the is the and then what right? If if we just want to 
leverage that one premise of biology that if there's a bad acting pathogen, you can outcompete it with a healthier version of it. Um, I'm actually surprised we haven't kind of seen maybe some of those efforts, I don't know, in, in MRSA or you know, trying to create a non-pathogenic MRSA strain or, or something like that. But I guess where I think at least I'm still trying to wrap my head around is like, like where else is that? Where, it, it, to what extent can we isolate cases of inflammatory bowel disease that are clearly driven by some kind of a pathogenic strain where we can replace it with a non-pathogenic. And, and I think we are, at least from what I can see, struggling to find those settings. And, and then you know, the next concentric ring around this biology is gonna be into, well, can we introduce um, bacteria that are somehow gonna change the, you know, the, the interaction of the microbiome with the gut, the microbiome with the gut and the brain, the skin, et cetera, where it's no longer about out-competing, it's more about like really changing whatever signaling processes are, might be causing the disease state. So I don't know, I haven't watched the space so closely. You know, Daphne, Ethan, curious if, if you're starting to see other areas where you know, the, the principles are really starting to bear fruit. Yeah, uh, I definitely. I'm, I'm, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I'm. I'm, oh, no, I'm here. I'm here for the color commentary, I guess. But um, I guess <laughs> I'll say what hasn't been said, which is I think the stink of eubiome has sufficiently dissipated. That that maybe that's what's allowed for the the space to be receptive to some positive outcomes. I can say on the startup side, as as far as I get access to sort of where where companies are being created, at least sort of Y Combinator biotech companies, not really seeing any direct sort of microbiome pitches per se, but you're seeing stuff around the periphery around um, uh, FODMAP, FOBzymes, and like, you know, some other direct-to-consumer plays that don't involve insurance fraud that maybe are going to help, uh, you know, bring back excitement around uh, this area. But I'm clearly not making a scientific comment about, about microbiome since that's not my, not my expertise, but maybe saying what some people were thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. For those people that don't know, Ubiome was a company that was doing sort of like diagnostic and screening tests around the microbiome, and they had some some sort of questionable uh, billing practices and things like that, and the company went under, and so that wasn't a very positive thing for the field. Um, but I, I do agree. And also, there's been a lot of history of you know prebiotics and probiotics and things that were not in any way clinically validated being sold to consumers with you know, kind of uh, overreaching uh, claims. Uh, and, and, you know, I think all of that obviously has not been helpful for the field. T- to get back to your point, Josh, so I definitely agree with you that the next frontier um, would be to show human clinical data uh, or with efficacy in areas that are sort of the next step beyond, beyond CDF. So definitely IBD, allergy, uh, areas like that. I also think this whole concept of what is happening? Like, what are how are the micro how is the microbiome influ- influencing drug metabolism efficacy and and things like that? You know, uh, analytical approaches to that are really intriguing, uh, and I think the gut brain and and um, things like that are just uh, you know obviously we're very interested in, in gut brain, but the microbiome uh, brain connection is um, farther out. I, I, I really don't think we're going to see 
uh, clinical data in the near term around that, but you know, we shall see. So I was, uh, uh, I was hoping Forte Biosciences, right, because they had a microbiome therapy for atopic dermatitis, and they had made an interesting case that you know the, the skin microbiome was disrupted and and causing some some skin inflammation, and, and they had what looked like a very promising approach, but that that lead asset failed, and and you know, that was kind of at the end of the. Yeah. yeah, and I remember Jamie Haywood, um, he founded patients like me in the ALS TDF. I remember he was involved in a skin microbiome company, and they talked about the fact that there were some people that were not showering for a year or something like that. That was uh, another oh, interesting sort of <laughs> <laughs> story around the microbiome, but um, he's a great guy, by the way, Jamie. Um, so going back to data, um, you are going to cover uh, Triceta and their phase three setback. And that was both a failure and a surprise, I think, just to many people. Can you say more about that? Yeah, so Tracida um, was running a phase three trial of uh, the Verimer for acidosis uh, or acidemia and chronic kidney disease, uh, the Verimer being a, basically an acid binder that raises the pH of the blood and, and supposed to protect the uh, the kidneys. And there's actually, I, I thought Tracida did a good job making making that case that if you can reduce the the acidosis and the the acid burden load on the kidney, that, that you could actually improve um, kidney or or at least reduce the the rate of deterioration of kidney function. But when they reported the phase three results uh, this week, that it turned out not to be the case. But but it's not clear that the trial looks like it failed because they never even got a chance to put the hypothesis to the test. The control arm was at least in theory, the, the investigators were not allowed to change the dose of sodium bicarbonate that patients were getting. And so in theory, they were supposed to remain acidemic um, while the treatment arm for the Verimer uh, improved their, their, their bicarb levels. But for some reason, the control arm looked like they had a fairly significant increase in, in bicarbonate levels themselves. And so there wasn't really meaningful separation between um, acidemia levels between the treatment and the control arm. So it's not, not exactly clear to me why it happened, whether you know, maybe patients just became more compliant when they went on the trial with their, you know, with their regimens that they were supposed to be on. Um, so unfortunately, then they never even really got a chance to test the hypothesis. And the stock's down ninety five percent as as a result, and it's a company that has more debt than cash now. So it'll be interesting to see if there is any path forward to uh, to revive that uh, that view and the hypothesis. The the next challenge they were going to have was you know there is sodium bicarbonate that that physicians um, may be comfortable using. So con so convincing them to to use the Verimer was was ultimately going to be a challenge. I, you know I thought. I thought Jacita made a decent case for, you know, just, just why Verimer um, would be better for patients. It doesn't have the same volume overload effect. But it will be interesting to see if that, if that asset can continue to find a, a path forward. But, you know, it looks like, uh, looks like something significant is going to need to change uh, if, if they want to continue to advance it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting when companies have bad news and then they also have debt, that seems like the perfect storm of negative uh, outcomes 
because um, I remember also when Bridge Bio had their phase three acoromitis data, they had a, a lot of debt at the time. It just um, you know caused them to, to crash pretty badly. But I think they've worked through a lot of the debt stuff now. Um, and on a related sort of bad news topic, uh, patient deaths uh, are devastating for the families who are hoping to see benefit from an investigational medicine. And we have two different pieces of news this week uh, regarding patient um, deaths in studies. One was Alpine Immune Sciences, and the other one was on Biogen and Esize Lacanumab. So STAT put out an article today uh, citing a patient death last June when an investigator in Esize Lacanumab trial uh, for Alzheimer's flagged a patient death due to bleeding in the brain, uh, and they, it was believed to be related to the drug, uh, according to STAT. And then ESI pointed out that there might have been other factors involved, like falls, a heart attack, or maybe stroke. Um, and they were taking a blood. Uh, and I think the point that this sort of raises is that these indications where patients are really sick and have multiple comorbidities, it's really important and hard to get to the bottom of which patients may have increased risk and, you know, um, how, how you know, there's also, I think, some complexity in figuring out you know, what's attributable to the drug. Um, and then Alpine Immune Sciences announced this week that they're going to terminate enrollment, and they actually terminated their CD28 agonist program altogether after patient deaths linked to cardiotoxicity. And there, I think it should be noted that CD28 has a history of um, serious safety signals from past programs and studies. I think that they were hopeful that they'd see a better safety profile there. Um, so let's pivot to some good news, and then I think we're almost uh, getting ready to wrap up with our under-the-radar um, section. So we'll go to Josh with new valent phase one data, uh, and then Ethan, I'm not sure if you have an under-the-radar uh, or other comments, and then we'll, we'll do all our under-the-radar, which is where we highlight uh, individuals, companies, uh, technologies, or areas of science that we think are really, uh, they could be better appreciated um, and are sort of under the radar. So Josh, uh, we'll go to you with Nuvalent. Um, yeah, so a big day for, for Nuvalent. The stock's up uh, really meaningfully on the, the back of their update for NVL520. So this is a ROS1 inhibitor that spares NTRAC. So up until recently, most of the ROS1 inhibitors also inhibit NTRAC and uh, inhibiting NTRAC can, can lead to various CNS side effects that uh, potentially limit the, the efficacy of the, the drugs as well. And so uh, Nuvalent very thoughtfully designed their compound uh, to, to really be exclusively ROS1 selective and, and cross the blood brain barrier. And so data this morning really supported the, the premise, like very clean efficacy profile, very, very strong. Um, efficacy as well in, you know, including in very refractory patients. And looks like that's a uh, compound that, that may be emerging as, as best in class safety and efficacy, obviously early. So some more work to be done, but a really delightful team as, uh, as well. And, you know, to me, it's also reflective of how impressively medicinal chemistry is evolving, you know, particularly in the TKI space, like we're, we're going from first gen to second gen to third gen to fourth gen with like incremental meaningful improvements uh, in a number of settings, not just in the oncology space, but we're starting to see this emerge in, uh, in the immunology as well. And it can be a little daunting to kind of figure out, well, 
how, how good can it get if there's if there's room for improvement you know someone might find that that secret medicinal chemistry structure for optimized specificity minimizing off target effects um, you know obviously it's on the heels of turning point being acquired for its um, you know very compelling looking ross one and Entrec inhibitor and now you've got you know just like months after that announcement new valent uh, in the game as well with um, you know it's looking like a really differentiated product profile it's something that we're always on the lookout for it's it's hard because we're not it's not like we're medicinal chemistry experts so how are we supposed to be able to really figure out if uh you know if if, if a drug is going to be able to to thread all the needles that a company is looking to to thread um but nonetheless like such an exciting time in the in in the field and and still opportunity for for companies to emerge and, and differentiate. So you know, it's again the same caveat as the beginning. It's not a buyer or sell recommendation on Nivellon because that's going to factor in valuations, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, it's just it's just an exciting time in the space generally. Yep, it's great news and um, great for patients as well. Um, potentially, Ethan, do you want to talk about? Um, do you have anybody that you'd like to highlight that you think deserves more recognition? I do. I mean, actually, if I if I can add two under the radar, maybe uh, I'll do them quickly if it's okay. One, I guess, more somber. One, a little bit more upbeat. So the somber one is uh, there was an article out in the New York Times this week by Erica Check Hayden, who's done a lot of writing about um, from kind of the front lines of rare genetic diseases and families and uh, cure odysseys and so forth. So there's an article out gene treatment for rare. Epilepsy causes brain side effect in two children. So this is a, a, a rare potassium channelopathy called KCNT1, a so-called knockdown ASO was delivered uh, to the CNS compartment through intrathecal injection. And one of the first patients to receive this therapy um, died. And, uh, and the doctor who was part of this, uh, Dr. Tim Yu at BCH, a good friend and colleague, uh, was the treating physician, and he's quoted in the piece. And, you know, it's, it's important for the community to share uh, what happens uh, when medical pioneers, um, you know, when, when things don't go as we want. Uh, and we have to share that, the, these, these accounts, so that we don't make these mistakes again. So just want to put out there that I'm uh, not trying to rain on the parade of ASOs. I think I'm still very long ASO. Um, but just wanted to flag that article um, in, in terms of uh, the, the, the frontier of individualized medicine or ASOs in the brain, is still, uh, it is still a frontier. And then the, the kind of more upbeat, uh, I guess, under the radar is last week I was able to attend and moderate a, a panel uh, hosted by Y Combinator, uh, a health and bio summit uh, that hopefully they're going to be hosting now every year. Um, and I'd like to highlight one company and one good friend of mine who's a fellow YC bio founder who kind of was very anonymous for many, many years, did not go after VC funding, went just very, very quietly, very methodically. His name is Jose Mejia Onieto. Uh, he actually, his company is called Shasky, S-H-A-S-Q-I. And uh, uh, you might know of this certain uh, professor who just won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry named Carolyn Bertozzi happens to be part of this company, uh, and their whole platform technology is based on something called CAPAC, Click 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 Chemistry, Click Activated Proto-Drugs Against Cancer, and Shosky actually has a elite asset, SQ3370, that is the first Click Chemistry-based therapy to be administered in human clinical trials, 
and is in development for the treatment of sarcoma and other solid tumors. So they're a YC bio company in the clinic. Uh, so is, uh, you know, I'll plug myself here. So is Perlaro through our joint venture, Magnus Pearl. So giving a plug here to YC bio companies and the, uh, the founder-led bio movement, if you will, if I can be a little provocative, I guess, if, if people consider that a provocative statement. Uh, so under the radar from, from the end of one world and the rare disease world, and also under the radar from the, uh, the West Coast uh, uh, founder-led bio side of the side of the globe. Yeah, maybe next time we can spend a little bit more time on founder-led bio. And I particularly am intrigued whenever I hear about a company that is able to get off the ground without VC funding. Uh, we were able to do that, and it's super super hard. But it's I think also interesting because you get um, you get a window into um, a different group of um, you know kind of people, different uh, you know kind of different network. And so uh, I'm a big supporter and fan of founder-led biotech as well as uh, you know companies that are able to fund themselves through different sources and not just the traditional VCs though I have a ton of respect for uh, life science VCs and many of them are very good friends of mine thanks Ethan so Josh do you want to do uh, I think you had a company yeah. you wanted to highlight yeah, yeah I'll do it. I'm Canadian, so this will be my opportunity to highlight a Canadian company, uh, SF Pharma, that popped back onto investor radar screens this week with their, um, they have an androgen degrader that, that looks like it targets kind of the broad array of androgen receptor mutations that can, can cause resistance to androgen receptor inhibitors in prostate cancer, including some of the splice variants. And so that's something they've been working on. For, for a while in, in a couple of iterations of chemistry. And so they had both some preclinical and some early clinical data in combination with, uh, with Xtandi. So it's, you know, when you're combining with an active drug, it's always hard to tell if there's like an incremental effect over what that active drug would have done on its own, but you know, small number of patients, the, uh, but the um, PSMA reductions that they're seeing, you know, certainly seem far in excess of what you'd expect necessarily from Xtandi alone. So, you know, potentially on the, on the right track with, uh, with that program. Uh, interesting, uh, interesting company to watch and one out of uh, actually British Columbia. I'm from Eastern uh, Canada, but it all counts. Mm -hmm. You don't say A or whatever it is that all, all the Canadians are no, supposed I, to say. I, yeah. I, uh, I used to, but it drew like just an absurd amount of <laughs> attention from <laughs> from Americans who are just overly fascinated by it. I was like, yeah, yeah. we're going to stop saying that. <laughs> That's great. So um, I will highlight one um, sort of institute that I've been, I've been really impressed with. I just learned about them recently, and then hopefully we'll have time to – we have a few questions that came in through the chat function, so hopefully we'll have time to cover those real quick. So I've recently come across the Science History Institute. I was also on a panel um, similar to Ethan. I guess that's how we learn about some of these things. Uh, the organization, the Science History Institute, they've been documenting the history of our industry. And what I think is really intriguing about it is they, they cover the history of scientific successes and failures strange surprises and mishaps, and they tell the stories behind the science. So there's two things I wanna mention. They're doing a lot to bring kids into science through these stories. You should look at their website, but they have a podcast and a digital magazine, and um, they offer programming at home, uh, virtual chemistry content, and they have a lot of free content. So I encourage you to get to know them, have your kids look at the content, 
it's sciencehistory.org. But I also think what's interesting about this is they are documenting the history of this industry. So if you're a biotech company um, and you want to have your story told, it might be a good idea to reach out to them. And, you know, they might already be writing the story of the modality that you're working on. Uh, they might have content and um, other information that you could use for your company or, you know, for your institution or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and I also encourage you to support their work through a gift if you feel so inclined. So I think that um, that is it for today. We have just a, a quick question, couple of quick questions. Leon uh, Tang, who is a frequent listener here, uh, is asking Ethan if it's possible that the family take the know-how. This is related to Taisha um, and uh, where he's saying um, – so the Taisha's potential commercial upside won't be impacted while they can still keep the hope and fighting chance alive. I think you, you covered that, but do you want to comment on that, Ethan? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's worthy of a longer discussion, but I think the short of it is absolutely. I think, you know, their whether, yeah, I think practically speaking, families are going to be moving forward with assets that have been abandoned. And I guess, you know, if it's going to come down to a somebody, a company initiating a lawsuit over some infringement, well, I guess, well, if they're willing to take the flack to do that, I guess, I guess so. But I think I don't think it's going to come to that kind of thing. But 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 ideally, yes, the know-how and and also other other physical reagents and so forth under transfer agreement can can be obtained and can be carried forward in some other capacity. But that's a longer discussion. Mm -hmm. And Josh, um, somebody uh, is asking if you can comment on the alleged commercial hurdle of tech Biley in the EU market. I don't know if you've been covering that. Um, well, I mean, Europe always takes uh, a little bit longer for, for things to, to evolve and, and work through negotiations. Not, not much more to say beyond that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's a few more questions, but I'll just end with uh, a comment from jo Dr. Jocelyn Pearl. Uh, on the founder-led bio side, this is a great event and provides awesome virtual networking. And she is putting a link in. She's replying to a thread at Biotech Hangout. So if you guys want to, um, you can look at all of the comments and questions. And also, um, there's some uh, quotes from today's session. So, you know, hopefully everybody enjoyed this. Uh, it's, we're hoping to start a new tradition late afternoon wrap up the week with some news, friends, uh, and, uh, you know, wishing everyone a great weekend. Uh, thank you so much, Ethan, for joining us. It was great to hear from you and kind of a different perspective than one we've been sharing that really the patient side of things. And uh, Josh, of course, always a pleasure. Thank you um, both. And um, thanks to everyone. Yeah. The one thing I'd add, don't be shy. Thank you. You know, if you got if you got things on your mind, you're you're welcome to come up and uh, and share. We're we're happy to listen. Yes, we don't bite. Exactly. <laughs> I echo that. <laughs> okay. All right. Have a great weekend, everyone. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend. Bye. Bye bye. We're gonna end the room. Thanks. <laughs>